this is Family Office Intel at Dentons, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actionable ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of the Family Office here at the firm. Our guest today is Paul Sullivan of the New York Times. He runs the Wealth Matters column for the New York Times. He's also the author of The Thin Green Line, Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy, and Clutch, Why Some People Excel Under Pressure and Others Don't. He also writes for a golf magazine and previously wrote for the Financial Times, Condé Nast, uh, Fortune, Money, Barron's, and Bloomberg. He's a graduate of Trinity College and the University of Chicago. Thanks for coming on, Paul. Thanks for having me on, Eddie. I appreciate it. So, Paul, let's let's jump into it. In one of your books, you mentioned uh, how you came into this field of money and following wealthy families by accident. So how'd you go from a PhD in history uh, to covering money and, and the wealth? <laughs> um, when I went off, I went straight uh, to the University of Chicago after finishing Trinity, and I had a fellowship, and I thought this is going to be great. And about three days into it, I said, oh, good God. What have I done? Uh, I don't have the passion for this um, that my fellow PhD students did. And uh, I thought if I can't you know, rev it up here at Chicago uh, and be happy with where I would go afterwards, it's probably better to you know, cut bait than to keep, keep fishing along. And so, but at the same time I said, well, I'm here. I might as well finish my master's degree because what am I gonna do? Can't just you know, pack up my U-Haul and, and go home. So I, I, got, I got the most out of my year um, but then I knew, you know, all along that I wanted to be, I wanted to write. And I can remember so distinctly when I got into Chicago, sitting um, in one of the dining halls at Trinity saying, boy, I just wish I could write for the New York Times. That's what I want to do. But I had no idea how to do it. Zero idea uh, whatsoever. So after Chicago, I moved to New York and I had a whole series of uh, wonderful starting jobs, which meant everyone was excruciating until I got to something I liked. And I, that's when people ask like, what do you want? He's like, you want a really bad first job because you don't want to kind of get there and it's really cushy and great. You want it to be awful and you want to think, I got to get out of here. And, you know, I moved around and the, the first, what I would call, you know, good, interesting, challenging job I had was at the FT. And it started in, in 2000, um, a guy named Robert Thompson is now quite senior at News Corp, uh, was a US editor and he hired 25 or, or 30 of us. And his whole idea was to shake things up. It had been a very British paper up to that point. And he hired a whole bunch of people from, from the US, from Australia, from, from South Africa, from all over the place. Um, and it was fun. It was great fun. And it was very, you know, entrepreneurial. We were, we all had real jobs, like assigned jobs, but then we were, you know, told to go and figure stuff out. So fast forward to 2005. And um, I was thinking a lot about about money, because I'd always been a business reporter. Um, but I began to see that a guy named Robert Frank was writing uh, a wealth column for the Wall Street Journal. And I was very intrigued by what Robert was doing. He, he famously wrote a book called Richestan, which is really interesting. He's now on CNBC. A um, lot of respect for Robert, but, but he approached his column from what I always say is the perspective of, wow, can you believe somebody has a $300 million yacht? Now, no, no disrespect to Robert, I don't want to minimize what he does. He does really great work. But my brain was wired exactly the opposite to that. And I looked at it and said, if you have a $300 million yacht, how much does it cost to run that $300 million yacht? Where do you, where do you put it? How do you get insurance for it? How many people do you think you need to work on a 300 foot yacht? 
can you even drive a 300 foot yacht? I mean, if you, if you got like, you know, an 18 foot Boston whaler, you can kind of tool around on that. But like, do you drive your own 300 foot yacht? Maybe, I don't know. And that's what fascinated me. And so I pitched the idea to the FT, uh, which is very much in competition with the Wall Street Journal. And I said, what if I did uh, a wealth column? And this is what it would look like. It would try to explain the sort of nuts and bolts. And uh, at this point, Lionel Barber uh, was running the US edition. He went on to very successful career running the entire FT and, and Lionel said, sure, you know, go for it. I mean, he said it in a more dramatic way because if you know Lionel Barber, he's a much more dramatic guy, but, but I took it to be, you know, sure, go ahead. And, and that's what I did, but it was 2005 and it was a perfect time to launch that iteration of a wealth column because everything was going up everything was rising in value and people were, you know, they weren't asking the questions I was asking. They weren't asking the questions of, you know, how much does that $300 million yacht cost? Cause they weren't also asking the questions of how do I uh, afford my $500,000 house in the, in, in the Nevada desert, in the California desert. Uh, nobody was asking those questions. And I had a really great run of finding, you know, interesting, you know, millionaires and billionaires and talking about it, but I just kept thinking, you know, what else could, could be here? And I took a break and I, I wrote for Connie Now's portfolio about more general things. But then in 2008, uh, that's when the New York times, uh, came calling. And I, and I thought very much that I was going to write uh, a similar column. I thought I was going to write a, you know, what I'd started in 2005, but just asked some different questions, but, you know, I always remember these dates, you know, I interviewed to write the column the day Bear Stearns collapsed. I was told I could write the column the day Lehman Brothers collapsed. And my first column ran the weekend that Bernie Madoff was pulled out of his Park Avenue apartment. And as I look back on that, like, you know, immediately the whole tenor and, and, and focus of the column shifted and, and that made it into a, a, a much different column than I, than I ever imagined it being. With the nuts and bolts piece of it, you know, we've talked about this before. It's a very private world and getting, getting those stories has got to be incredibly difficult to get people to share some of those details. How have you found in your travels being able to do that? I mean, it, let alone um, somebody explaining how something that, that happens that way, getting to, to in front of those people, they, they tend to be very, very private. It was more difficult at first, but I think I've proven over the years that I'm genuinely interested in how um, these people are doing it. And I don't come at it uh, from a gotcha angle. And uh, this weekend will be my 600th column uh, in the New York Times. And, and so I have a huge tracker record where people can look back and say, okay, what has Sullivan written over the years? I mean, it's 12 and a half years that, that I've been doing this. So they know who I am and what I'm interested in doing. So. I approach them uh, from a perspective of, of gratitude that they're going to share their story with me, uh, genuine interest. But, you know, over the 16 years that I've been focused on wealth, um, I, I'm an expert. Yeah, I don't want that to sound immodest, but I know an awful lot about an awful lot of things. Um, and, and there's plenty I don't know, and, and, and I rely on experts, and, and, and I'm happy to admit what I don't know. But I have enough of a base of knowledge that I can understand very complicated stuff and then make it easily understandable to the, to the general reader, the, the, the well-educated reader who isn't an expert in, you know, some of these more complicated strategies, but really it starts with a genuine interest, uh, in people 
and it's backed up with uh, a deep expertise in, in the subject matter. So more than a decade of doing this, if you had to think back to what it was like, obviously, you know, there's the financial crisis and all the other area, uh, you know, sort of main timeline points that you mentioned. What's different about this column today than back then? And, and what's changed when covering wealthy families and wealth? Yeah, it's gone through so many different iterations. Uh, and I guess I could measure it by emails or, or, or tweets now that I get. Um, in the beginning, I always remember, you know, my column has always run on, on Saturdays, uh, which means it goes online sometime on, on Friday and probably seven, eight months into it. Um, this group created this whole website, um, to sort of say how foolish Paul Sullivan of the New York times was. And it was, my wife was terrified by it. And they just kept saying all kinds of crazy stuff. And, you know, I remember one guy saying at the time I wore, I wore bow ties and, and one guy writing, you know, if only he wore a long tie, we could hang him. How do you hang somebody with a bow tie? And I was like, which is not why I wore bow ties, but it you know, came, came in quite handy. It would just, it would just come untied, you know, so it would be sort of anticlimactic. Um, there was this real sort of, you know, anger, uh, toward, toward the wealthy. And then I think as my readership, you know, developed, there was, as the sort of everyone as, as things rebounded uh, in in two thousand nine, ten, eleven, uh, there was a more of an interest in an understanding of how certain folks had had remained successful while others had had struggled, and so there's a genuine, you know, interest in that. Um, and now, I would say at this point, this is at least the third, if not the fourth or fifth iteration. At this point, um, it's the greatest bifurcation I've ever seen between not just the haves and the have nots, but what I call, you know, the, the haves and the have mores. Um, and I see it, you know, because there's always been a sort of anthropological and a sociological part to my column. It hasn't just been about money because it's been more behavioral finance and try to explain how people think about these things. But I look at this now and I see, you know, if, if I write a column on philanthropy and some very wealthy person has given you know, $10 million to a cause. $10 million is a lot of money, you know, if you have a billion dollars or not, it's just a lot of money. And I could get an angry email saying, you know, why didn't so-and-so give more money? If so-and-so had given more money or why did so-and-so, you know, choose to buy a boat when he could have, you know, given the, the price of that boat to charity. I still get that email, but then I watch like what, uh, you know, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos have done in sort of, shooting themselves into suborbit, um, spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on that, which I would have thought would have upset certain people who talk about wealth inequality, but instead it sort of fascinated them. And I, I try to wrap my head around this where you'll, you'll get very happy. Uh, you're, you're very happy to criticize somebody who doesn't give enough money to charity or gives money to the wrong charity or derives some sort of benefit from giving to charity, like sitting on the board. But you won't decry somebody who is essentially flying themselves and some of their friends into orbit for five minutes at the cost of, of billions of dollars. And, and that's a real divide where I, I just don't think it's very hard for us to understand each other anymore. And the tagline for my column when it first started off was, you know, strategies that the middle class or upper middle class person could learn from the wealthy person. That's what I try to, you know, distill it down into. And I think that's, you know, 
increasingly more and more difficult. And I'm sure you know this from your world. I mean, what, what somebody with $50 million has in common with a billionaire is, is almost nothing. Um, and, and that's, I think, what people don't understand when they lump all the, you know, quote unquote, wealthy together in, in one bucket. Interesting feedback on on the the two space missions that have, have kind of come up because they certainly have received some controversy to it, but you think it's different now. It's almost like uh, I can, there, there's a part of the population that can get that more than, more than they used to, or what do you think about that? I think, well, I mean, maybe it's a bad example. Maybe people are just fascinated by the idea of, of space flight. And, you know, I've always written columns that are, you know, aspirational to which people may read them and say, wow, isn't that great to have the $300 million yacht? I have my 18 foot Boston whaler. Uh, you know, I can, I can understand that. And so maybe there is that component to it because it is, you know, space flight, um, or, or semi space flight, some nostalgia but, maybe for that. Yeah. Or... And, and yeah. And it's, it's kind of cool, but they're just, I, I think there's so much so much anger and i'm sure we'll talk about this later of, of, of what you know i think covid and the pandemic has done but there's just such a, a, a split now and 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 the well-paid you know corporate attorney or, or, or the well-paid uh spinal surgeon at an hss or something like that they just don't have that much in common with the 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 super wealthy and it's you know and it's that how that dynamic i feel has changed in the past you know, 10, 15 years as, I mean, Elon Musk, nobody knew who Elon Musk was in, in 2005. And now the whole world knows who Elon Musk is. Where do you see the concept of, that's often talked about family office come up in all of your conversations? Is this something, uh, certainly not a new concept in how wealthy families arrange themselves and manage their affairs, uh, and no shortage of articles that have been written on this topic. Is that... Is it something that's picked up steam for you, or at least in conversations, or is it something that has always been an undertone to you know conversations that you've had about wealthy families? I'd say it's picked up steam, but not in the way that um, people might have thought. Like when we were talking about family offices 15 years ago, we were talking about um, I don't want to say serious. I mean, very large. Uh, endeavors that were very well staffed with all types of investment professionals. And, you know, those have only grown over time, particularly as some hedge funds have converted into family offices. These are, are entities that are managing, you know, billions of dollars and, and allocating capital, uh, have greater capital than, you know, many asset management firms do. Um, and, and there's, you think of like, you know, He's passed away now, but you know Paul Allen kind of flew under the radar for a long time. But Vulcan, I don't know what it has now, but a couple of years ago it had about twenty-five billion dollars, and that is such an enormous amount of money to really um, invest in things you you care about and invest in things you believe in. He did a whole thing on healthcare. You know, he's known for some of the more headline-grabbing stuff, but really serious investments that he could make that could change the, the state of play for a certain company. But you also have this other group of people who are wealthy by everyone's standards, but a billionaire. And, and these are people with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Again, ton of money, but hundreds of millions of dollars. It sounds good to say, I have a family office. But what is that family office really doing for the person with, you know, $90 million? Is it, you know, 
again, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but is it more of a, a vanity project? Or would they be better served at a, a large uh, private bank uh, that could give them all kinds of options and, and invest their $90 million or their $210 million really well? And I think that as family offices have become better known, I think there's a tendency, at least what I've seen in my reporting and, and from some you know social interactions, with, with a person who sells a company for you know a hundred ish million dollars, week later says, "Well, what do you do?" Well, I, I run my own family office now, and that's so far removed from what you know the the Bloomberg's and the Gateses and you know continuing on after him, you know Paul Allen's Vulcan are are doing. It, it's it's just a you know it, it's not even like the New York Yankees in single A. It's or maybe it is. Maybe it is the New York Yankees in, in single A. It's just so completely different. Um, but still using the same term, family office. Some of those large families, family offices, don't even want to be called family offices anymore. They want to be, it's almost like a, a bad moniker for them, rather be more institutional in that. Uh, I don't know if you're seeing any of that in, in, in the families that you're talking to as well. Right, and, and they'll talk not about the investments they're making, but they'll, they'll sort of talk about their competitive advantage of being you know, patient capital. If, if you're investing for subsequent generations and not investing for uh, even a, a you know a, a CalPERS or something like that, that at some point is going to need to you know pay out some of that money, or you're not investing you know uh, in, in a public fund that's going to have to report its returns. But if you can be that patient capital and invest for 10, 15, 30 years, um, that's a game changer. As as you know, the companies that you're investing in are trying to work through their strategy. And they also feel then, uh, again, very different, like they have a partner, like they have somebody who has some sort of expertise. I mean, you know this better than I do, but there are many groups out there that that help broker those connections. You know, the the, the person who made billions uh, in widgets investing in the next, you know, up and coming widget factory and, and not just giving the capital, but sharing that knowledge of, of how he grew his widget company and, and how this person can can do it differently. I mean, that's that's a, you know a serious help for a lot of these companies to get that type of family office money. So you've walked through a different regulatory issues that family office has been through. Certainly post two thousand nine with Dodd Frank, and certainly the most recent um, issue with uh, Archegos and, and and that family office. Do you think any of that has any, any negative consequences for regulation are on the way? Or is that something that has died down in terms of what you're seeing both on the, the policymaking front and from a family office concern perspective? Well, the two things I don't do are uh, make predictions uh, <laughs> or opine on policies. So, so this kind of ties both of those together. So it's a good question. It's a, yeah, it's a good question for which I'll punt on it. But before I punt, I will punt, but then I'll say this, like, th- think it through. Um, if, if you are uh, an elected official and you want to create some sort of change, and let's say you believe that some of these family offices or uh, wealthy people in general aren't paying a lot in taxes, you have some existing levers that you can pull, and then you can go and try to create something uh, de novo and, and see if that works. But the problem is you, you're only guaranteed to be in office for so many years. And you want to be able to sort of say that you accomplished something. So 
your existing levels are, you can do something with the capital gains tax. Your existing levels are, you can do something with the income tax. Maybe um, you can get rid of <clears throat> the step up in basis. That's all stuff that is within the realm of possibility in a short amount of time. Can you institute uh, wholesale regulation of an industry that's fairly opaque and very misunderstood by the general population? I don't know if that's possible. It, it's sort of like the proposal you know, last year at the beginning of the election cycle of a wealth tax. Um, one, con some constitutional scholars didn't even think it was legal, that it was even constitutional, that you could do that. But even get beyond that, the logistics of it, of how you would sort of execute it uh, year after year after year to value what that person had. And then three, to have enough resources uh, at, at the IRS, I'd assume, to, to sort of go through and audit these um, returns year after year. It's just not quite possible. I'm not saying it's, that's good or bad, but I, I think I've always been a, a, you know, a voice of pragmatism. And I just don't, you know, are, are there always going to be some people, some family offices that get in trouble and they do egregious things and they run afoul and they're low-hanging fruit? A hundred percent. But you could look but, at that in any industry. You look at every industry, every industry. Like we want low hanging. I mean, I mean, again, I don't want this to come across as cynical. I'm, I'm not a cynical person, but um, there are other easier levers to sort of say, look, here's what we've done to sort of, you know, minimize the inequality gap, which is really what this, this comes down to when you talk about a gigantic family office and then what it may or may not be doing. And, and that's a lot more tenable and a lot easier to accomplish, though quite difficult than to create something uh, new or to, you know, hire up a whole bunch of, uh, you know, investigators to, to look into what these family offices are doing. So I won't ask you to opine on the policy, but what, did, what are you hearing from both the industry and the families on tax changes and other reforms this year? I, I know you, you've written some on it. Do you think there's genuine concern or is it a wait and see approach to, to what, what actually comes out? Because there's been if anything, a lot of noise. Yeah, I think there's genuine concern, but it falls into the bucket of, and I wrote about this in my second book, The Thin Green Line. When it comes to taxes, you you have a lot of levers, but you have to know what those are and you have to know when to, to use them. And you know, the tax rate is going to be what the tax rate is, um, which I don't want that to sound like gobbledygook, but you have to make you know plans with the information you have now. So what did some people do at the beginning of the year? I know you know this. If you hadn't uh, you know gifted away uh, your entire exemption level, you, you topped it out up. Why? Because it's a use it or lose it. The more difficult question was if you were somebody right on the line, right on the border, where you know could you give that money right up to the eleven plus million dollars for an individual? And you or, or 22 plus for or 23, I think for a couple, you you could do it, but should you do it? So that was a debate there because the idea is if at least on the estate and gift tax, um, if it goes down and you haven't given above the amount that it goes down to, well, you, you've lost that. So that's a real sort of mental exercise over something you can control. You know, another thing is, you know, there's been talk in the past about get getting rid of grants, get grant returned, uh, grant retained annuity trusts, which are a great way to translate, transfer assets if you think that asset is going to appreciate quickly. And the short-term grant is something that's been in the crosshairs for years. Will it go away this time? Who knows? I don't know. 
But if you're going to do it, now is probably the time to do it because chances are whatever tax legislation comes into to being, they're not going to look backward. I mean, they could. I mean, that's a, a fear that, you know, some practitioners have, have talked about, but it's it's highly un- unlikely. And, you know, even I would mentioned the getting rid of the uh, step up in basis or, or, or what you'd call uh, the date of death valuation. That sounds great as a way to, you know, bring in tens of millions of dollars from, from super wealthy people. But if it's not structured correctly uh, and there isn't some sort of, you know, exemption up to a certain amount of money, it's going to end up capturing all of these other people for whom, you know, their house or a stock portfolio is their greatest asset to leave to their children. Well, it's going to be highly uh, appreciated and they could end up losing out on that. So, so that's why this is so complicated. So like anything to do with tax, I think you have to look at what the law is right now. And then if you can afford to, and you can think it through, you know, rationally, do everything you can now, because if the tax law gets changed in September or October, some people talk about, well, that seems a little, you know, a a little early. It was talked about that way in September, but if it gets changed, uh, you know, for next year, well, that's next year. What you can deal with now is is 2021, and, and there's still tons of things available for people to make uh, savvy tax planning decisions to, to minimize their tax and, and ma- maximize their wealth transfer. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned your book, The Thin Green Line. You know, one of the examples that you provide is is looking at you know, things in, in in buckets. Do those buckets still apply today in terms of saving, spending, and and and, and giving? Is uh, and is there anything that you would change with that? Saving, spending, and giving, and then thinking about it. That was, you know, because I always talked about that, about how people, you know, some people have a very healthy relationship to, to money, and some people, uh, money is so many other things than, than what it really is. And, and money is just a, a means of exchange. Um, it's a more you have, the more choice you have, the less you have, the, you know, fewer choices you have. What would I change today? I don't know. I think that book, it came out in 2015, and I think it still applies very well um, to the upper middle class reader and even, you know, a very wealthy reader um, because it's still about making, you know, basic decisions. And, you know, the whole premise of it is is to be wealthy and not rich. And the premise is that you're above this thing that I created, the thin green line. Uh, and you could be at the bottom of that line, or you could be at the, the tippity top and be a billionaire. But you've made such wise decisions that you're not over leveraged. Um, you're, you're not beholden to anybody and you can weather something like a, a pandemic where you have uh, little or no in- income for three months, six months, uh, a year and, and rich is everybody else. And, and that other side of that line are people who are, are just scraping by. Um, and we saw a lot of those people were, were just completely hammered uh, by the pandemic when, you know, the service industry's jobs just ended. Um, and, but then you also have people who, you know, are, are seemingly, you know, quite wealthy, but but they're really just rich. And by that, I mean, they're super leveraged. Um, they're, you know, they've margined their accounts. They're, they're making uh, not so much investments as, as bets. And, you know, it's a house of cards. Now, of course, when I wrote the book, you know, I could describe, I gave a lot of talks about the book. I could always describe those people, but I never felt like they were going to listen to me. I never felt like if you're living that lifestyle, you're going to say, you know what? I think Sullivan's right. Maybe I don't need all this. Maybe I should be, you know, less leveraged. It was more to like the person as they were coming up for them to bear that in mind, to, to stay on the, 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 the correct side and, and make those 
decision. So, I mean, you know, as we've seen over the past you know, year plus, um, you can, you know, have a, you know, a personal account or you can have a, a business and, and, and be able to have it, you know, last through something as unexpected, but wholly disruptive as, as the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's not going to be the last disruption to come up and, and, and others will be predictable or unpredictable from that. I mean, we had, I mean, just in the 20 years that we talked about, think of how many black swan and black swan like events uh, kind of occurred through that. Um, I think part of it is also, it, it does bear the test of time and saying, if you could think about those, those areas, I think it, it really fits into it. I, I wonder if, is there a generational thing that you're saying with millennials? I mean, we, we both have young kids. Are they, is there, is that a different conversation that people are having uh, today around that? Or, or do you think that the same, same issues still creep up? I mean, I can speak, I can answer that question personally. Um, and then my wife who works in asset management and I are open in a, in an age appropriate way with our three girls as to how they should think about, money and we talk you know we don't tell them how much we make we don't tell them um how much our house costs even though that's the easiest thing in the world to figure out how much somebody's house costs or how much your car costs and you go on on zillow or, or cars.com and you immediately know what it is but we're trying to instill in them the sense of decision making and so when we talk when we make a decision like i have a daughter my oldest daughter this is a parenting failure, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, for, for everybody listening here. My oldest daughter uh, has been riding horses uh, for the past five years, which is something I, you know. That is an expensive, expensive It's hobby. a parenting failure. Uh, the only thing I could do worse, I think, is, is if another one of my kids gets into hockey. Because <laughs> at least, you know, hockey, they're like 7 a.m. Uh, for some sort of, you know, game that's, you know, two hours away and they're five years old. And like, are you kidding me? How, how is this a rational use of our time? But from day one... Um, with our daughter, we said, you know, she got into this program that's a nonprofit horseback riding uh, program in the town where we live in Connecticut. And it's really sweet that the kids have to go to the barn, they have to work there, they get one lesson a week, or maybe they get two lessons a week. But we made clear from the beginning that one, she was never going to go to the fancy barn, the next town over where they put the saddle on the horse for you, they wash the horse down, they pick the horse's hooves for you. And we were never ever going to buy her a horse. And she did, did all you kinds stick to of that? Research. 100%. We 100% have stuck to that. Um, because, and she, she's smart. She's done research. She said, we have, to get, we have to get a new car. And we got a Suburban, which is, you know, a Suburban costs a lot more than a, than a horse. And she said, uh, you, know, you know, mommy, daddy, you know, a horse costs this, uh, you know, $20,000. And, and I know from looking online that a Suburban is about four times that cost. You know, why, you know, how you guys said, you know, you didn't have money to, to buy me a horse, but how can you buy me a Suburban? And we said, no, no, no. We, we never said we didn't have the money to buy you a horse. We said we would not buy you a horse. But it, it, it kind of went into this whole conversation of wants versus needs. Like I said, said to her, it's like, there are two adults, three children. Uh, we have three dogs. Uh, my dad spends a lot of time with us. We use every bit of that Suburban to drive on a family vacation or just to drive around town. We have no use whatsoever for a horse that my daughter will, will ride, you know, a couple times a week. And she got it. And it took a while and a lot of painful conversations, but the horse became an example of a conversation of needs versus wants. And as we've always said, like later on in life, if, if you go out and you make your own money and you want to buy yourself a horse, have at it. But, but that will be, you know, your choice. And, and the whole book 
the thing Green Line is about choices. And at the end of our lives, we want to make more good choices than bad choices, knowing that, you know, we're all going to make bad choices along the way. Well, you're also teaching the value of things, right? Certain things have different levels of value and that, that feeds into that wants and needs piece, which is it's such a hard thing to say. It's like when you hear one of your kids say, oh, that's just $10 or it's just X dollars. You're like, no, <laughs> no, that's not it. Well, the $10 is a great example. I'll just add this one more story is that there's a toy store in town uh, where a, a, a basic Barbie, and I've got three daughters, a basic Barbie, uh, not a lot of accessories, no puppy, no bicycle, basic Barbie, 10 bucks. And they go in there and uh, they've all gone through the same thing. They're four, nine, and 12. And the 12-year-old obviously is out of the Barbie stage. But they've all gone through the same stage where a single Barbie costs $10. And that was sort of a gift from the toy store gods, because I've been able to to quantify expenditures in Barbies. And you're like, how much, you know, we don't have a Range Rover, but how much does that guy's Range Rover cost? Well, that Range Rover costs 700,000 Barbies. And they're like, what? what are like, and can you imagine where would you put 700,000 Barbies? Because it's a physical asset. Because, you know, we're using credit cards for everything. It's very rare that I'm, I, I could go to the ATM once a month because I have to pay for that coffee money for me. Everything else is on a, a credit card. So how would I get something physical to teach my kids the value of money? And and that's that that Barbie. And then in their their mind, you see the wheel spinning as they conceptualize this gigantic stack of seven hundred thousand Barbies uh, becoming one Range Rover that sits at the you know the train station all day long and doesn't get driven. I love that. I think I'm going to use that currency as well as adding iPads as, as a form of currency too. I think that's a relatable one for that group. Yeah. So one, one last thing from the, from the book, Tiger 21 was certainly an interesting piece to it and how that investment club, uh, you know, kind of opened some perspective to you. Are you seeing some more things on that line? Uh, like a Tiger 21 continue to maybe overtake it or an evolution on that concept? Uh, for it? And is there any application to it uh, for learning about wealth? Sure. I mean, for your readers, I mean, I'm sure many of your, many of your listeners know about Tire 21, but it's essentially, it builds itself as an investment club, but it's a lot more than that. Um, it, it's, a, it's trying to help people make, you know, the other decisions in their lives that will have probably a far greater impact on their happiness and their family's happiness than whether they buy uh, you know, stock and Visa or, or stock and MasterCard. Uh, and, and it's, um, looking at the, all the things that you can control, you know, your life insurance, your estate plan, um, the discussions you have with your children uh, about your own wealth. And what's interesting is, is I, I've, I've continued to talk to members of that group and continue to talk to Michael Sonnefeld who, who created the group. And I'm pretty sure when I met with them for the first time, which is way before the, the book came out, maybe they had, 250 members maybe um and the minimum was 10 million which i think is still a 10 million dollar minimum now they have over 800 members and they have chapters all over the country uh and a year or so ago maybe two years ago the pandemic blurred everything a private equity firm came in and, and bought uh, a portion of it because it's a recurring revenue stream you know i don't know what the current uh annual fee was but it used to be around 30 thirty thousand dollars you got 800 some odd people paying you thirty thousand uh, dollars a year it's a pretty good Sounds uh, like a bond. It's a pretty good business model, you know, and it's and what do you do? You bring them all together, you hire a moderator and you give them lunch. Um, 
and and you know obviously the moderator is being paid, but that value is bringing those people together. So so that that one organization has grown that much in a decade and less than a decade, really. I mean, they, they, they probably doubled in the past five years shows, you know, you can either interpret that as boy, there's been a, uh, a huge expansion in wealth, or uh, I prefer to interpret it. There's been a, a huge expansion in the desire to understand your wealth and, and to not make and to try to make more good decisions than, than bad decisions around wealth. And, you know, whatever you may think one way or the other about Tiger 21, I think that's ultimately what those groups, uh, that group tries to, to do when it brings people together to discuss what's on their mind. So how do you understand some of the new things that come out in wealth, right? Like digital art and NFTs. Uh, I enjoyed your last article on that topic. You know, when, when new things come over the horizon like that, how, how do you approach them uh, from, from that perspective? Because you mentioned part of your role is to be really a Rosetta Stone and translate some of that. Yeah, the general I mean, the, the good thing is I, I've had this framework of, you know, genuine curiosity and the questions I ask that served me well for, for 15, 16 years. And that's, how does it work? And why do you want to buy it? And <clears throat> everybody will tell you what the upsides are. That's easy. You don't even have to ask that question what the upsides are. But what are the downsides? And what are the things that people aren't thinking about? And so... You know, NFTs, we're, here we are, we're, we're talking, you know, at the very end of July, almost into August. And I remember probably six, seven months ago when NBA, NBA Top Shots, which is their NFT, was getting a lot of coverage. And I talked to this dad of my youngest daughter, and I'm, I'm sure this has happened to you when you've got a gap uh, in, in ages. Suddenly, you know, you've got these friends from the first daughter that are more or less your age. And the friends from the last daughter are 10, 15 years younger than you. And he was explaining this to me like I was an old man. I said, like, this doesn't make any sense to me. He says, no, you got to look at it this way. And, and that's what kind of piqued my curiosity. And this way was, if you think of a whole generation that's grown up gaming in which they've been buying stuff in those games that only have value as long as that game publisher, you know, continues to run that game or deems that they have value. If they're willing to pay for that, what if they could buy something that was digital? And sort of the digital version of a Picasso, the digital version of a Lamborghini, but be able to own it, be able to have it as their own. And you can't really insert it into another game because I don't think the publishers will let you, but, but to have it as your own possession in the digital world, that's what, you know, was attractive. And then after that, the basic laws of supply and demand uh, kick in as they, as they have for, for centuries. The, one that are, the ones that are scarcer are going to be worth more money, you know, just as, you know, in this story, I talk about this, this Damien Hurst project in which he's going to make people decide next summer between whether they want to keep the physical print and destroy the NFT or keep the NFT and destroy the physical print. Um, and that, however it shakes out, will be fascinating. But at the same time, it's still 10,000 of these have been made. So their value is going to be capped, just like the value of any uh, art print has been capped. You know, if you only have a, a run of 10, well, those 10 are going to be more valuable than if you have a similar run of 1,000 or, or 10,000. And so you're going to come across as this thing, you know, evolves. Like you look at the Beeple uh, that sold for almost $70 million a couple months ago. That's crazy. That wasn't even, you know, the only one. There are others of that that you can own and buy. So, so that's the part where I, I, I my sort of, you know, the, the cautionary part of my brain wakes up because I get it if it's one of one, 
but you know, as you're paying these large sums for something that is uh, in a series, I think again, supply and demand and, and, and art history really, really come into play as a guide for, for people and forget about all the, the digital part, just, just understand it through, through that lens. What about the picks and shovels and the, and the marketplace and the general stores around uh, that? Is that going to be different than the Christie's that we're used to and other kind of big auction houses for art? Or are there other spinoffs from that since it's digital native type platform or what have you seen out there? Yeah, but I mean, again, I'm always wrong when I predict. So don't don't consider this uh, <clears throat> a, a prediction. Um, but what happened historically when uh, a startup uh, doing something different begins to gain traction? What happens is a very large player comes in and says, "I would like that startup as a way to diversify." what I'm already doing. And, and, you know, if that's a Christie's or a Sotheby's or, or a Phillips, you know, one that's a kind of a rung down, it's not, again, it's not a prediction. I don't know anything. Uh, I'm just kind of opining here. Uh, it's not too difficult to imagine, you know, one of those established players um, buying, you know, uh, an upstart that, and, and buying the upstart, being the upstart that, that does better than, than everybody else. And then it becomes a, you know, a much more understandable and, and relatable entrepreneurial story. So I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of predicting, but this is no about point. something that I think we can even talk about the now. And that's that's certainly the, the pandemic. A, a year and a half ago, a, a very different conversation we would be having about this. And then uh, where we are going uh, into the fall here of 2021, where, what did you see that was different in the space that you cover when this started versus today? And do you think that even not too far distant future, what kinds of things, changes that we'll see on the on the horizon for uh, wealth and wealthy families? It's a great question. Um, and, and I thought a lot about it because the answer, and, and it, it's, it's sort of shocking to me, is in the space that I cover, very little has changed. And that is shocking because the rest of, the economy and the world has been so disrupted. So if you are uh, a very wealthy person with assets, or if you're just an upper middle class person uh, with uh, a stock portfolio and a diversified uh, series of investments, you've probably done fantastically well during the pandemic. And I think if anything, um, there's a desire when you're not with your friend group to sort of play it down. I mean, I was, you know, I'm, it's no secret you said I write for Golf Magazine. I'm a huge golfer, um, you know, much to my wife's chagrin. And, you know, I, I played golf not too long ago with a, a friend who works at a large wealth management firm. Um, and he said, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say that we're cruising along and, and nothing has has changed. And that is shocking because when you get out of the bubbles in which we live, um, these parts of the economy have been, you know, decimated. There are people who are, you know, I don't know if they'll ever be able to sort of dig themselves out of the holes that they didn't create for themselves. They, they just, it, it, no, nobody thought restaurants would be closed for months and months and months and months. You know, this is the, you know, or, or, or that you'd have so many, you know, so many months of back rent that it's not possible to, to, to pay it. It's like, and, and so that's, you know, how this shakes out between 
uh, you know, group, call it the top 5%, maybe the top 10%, and the other 90% of, of, of the country, and, and if you put it in international terms, it's even greater than that, how that shakes out when you now have two parts of the economy that um, have had fundamentally um, non-comparable experiences through the pandemic. Um, I, it, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen, um, but it, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be something serious um, because we've long gone beyond that. It's sort of romantic, you know, moment in time where, you know, the banker, the doctor, the plumber, and the teacher all lived on, on the same street. We, we've long lived in our own communities, which, you know, personally, I, I don't think is great because we, we don't really know the other, we don't know other people, um, you know, as friends, other, other occupations as, as friends. But now we've had this moment where, I mean, it's just such a bifurcation in, in, in wealth due to you know, people who own assets and, and people who um, to, just who earn a salary or, or have income. And whatever happens is, is going to be momentous. Put your global hat on. You know, we've been very U.S. centric in this conversation. Are you seeing anything outside the United States that's interesting in the sort of the wealth management or wealth, um, you know, wealthy families uh, that, that's different or unique uh, compared to compared to the U.S.? I say it's a wealth management thing, but again, I think it's a wealth issue. Um, you know, you and I were talking before about where we live, and we, we live in the Northeast, where we have more or less, uh, you know, knock on wood, um, tamed the the pandemic through high vaccination rates and full participation in you know mask wearing and and all the things that we were told to do. There are other parts of America that that have not tamed the pandemic, and then, but then you look at you know, G7 countries, um, you know, one of my best friends, his wife is Italian, and for them to go see her parents is a Herculean uh, effort. I mean, countries like Italy and France, and, and I, I guess the UK has turned the corner, but that's going to have, a, you know, an even greater impact. Like here in the United States and the Northeast, people are going back to offices, and it's okay, and people aren't as, they're not scared like they were uh, a year ago. And, and that hasn't happened. Um, and I'm not even talking about, you know, the developing world. I'm talking about G7 countries that are struggling with that. And how is that going to affect the way those governments, you know, allocate capital going forward? How is it going to affect the way those governments tax the wealthy to pay for the programs that they've had to institute? Again, I mean, that's going to be a, a huge shift, all within the framework of, uh, you know, money moves. And so if they institute too many strict regulations, money's going to move somewhere else. And so it's, it is an incredibly uh, complicated problem. And, and I will say this, I think anybody who makes a prediction, uh, they're either going to be dead wrong uh, or incredibly lucky if, if their prediction comes true, because it's such a complicated, multifaceted problem. So no more predictions, but let's, <laughs> let's, let, let's look in the rearview mirror. And if you had... Uh... And, and certainly about lessons learned. If you had to go back and and you knew something that you know today, back when you got started in your career, what would that be? If I knew something today, that's a good question. I think I've been, you know, again, this is this could come back and invite me, you know, where, but I've I've been pretty lucky. You know, I don't I don't have a, I don't have a lot of regrets. It, it's worked out, you know, 
really well. And, and what I did in the beginning uh, was I put my head down and I worked really hard and, and I stayed up late and I, I got up early uh, and I try and, and I'm a naturally curious person. And so I just asked a lot of questions. And, and so when, when people want to get into journalism and they ask me that and they say, oh, well, what do you think is going to, you know, what are going to happen to newspapers? What's going to happen to radio? What's going to happen online? And I say, people are still going to want stories and people are still going to need information and people are still going to need trusted sources to give them that information and tell those stories. So, you know, I, I just say it's, you know, work hard. And, and let me preface all this. We didn't talk about this. Like, I, I don't come from a wealthy family at, at all. Uh, you know, I was a, a lower middle class at best, and I, and I got a scholarship uh, to go to prep school, which paid for all of it. Uh, then I got a, a financial aid to go to college, uh, which paid for all but maybe $2,000 of it. And then I got a fellowship to go to Chicago. So I don't want people saying, oh, you know, here's this guy writing about wealth and he grew up really wealthy and, and he doesn't know. I, I know very well what it's like to be uh, to be broke or, or when I was a kid to be on on subsidized lunch. Um, and so I, I think I bring that. I mean, that kind of comes full circle to what we talked about in the beginning of why I wanted to understand how people were able to you know, pay to run that $300 million yacht, which is essentially asking the question, how do you hang on to the money that you make? Because that's what fascinated me, because it wasn't something that my family, you know, growing up was able to do. Um, so I, I just throw that out there so that the, the listeners don't say, you know, God, Sullivan is, is so out of touch. He doesn't know what is going on here. I, I know very well from, from the first, you know, 30 plus years of my life. Well, anybody that can value a, a Range Rover and Barbie dolls uh, <laughs> probably probably does. So, Paul, I really appreciate our, our conversation today. I uh, really appreciate having you on. And thanks for all of you for listening in today. And if you'd like to get in touch with Paul, you can check out his, his latest column uh, at the New York Times, the Wealth Matters column that he has there. He's also on Twitter at Sullivan Paul, if I have that right. Uh, and if you enjoyed today's conversation, so inclined, do subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. And as always, sharing this episode is probably the best way that you can show your support. Sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space. Check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone. Thank you.